There's an important debate that always seems to heat up in our society around this time of year. And I've tried to stay out of this debate because it always leads to divisive arguments between warring camps with passionate feelings. It's a controversy. It cuts through families, draws lines between lovers, and mirrors the social, political, religious, and generational differences that plague our country. The debate centers around the answer to a single provocative question. And no, it's not, was Mary really a virgin? Or was Jesus really born on December 25th? Or did Mary really give birth in a stable? Or was Jesus really God in the flesh? No, the contentious debate in question is, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? For those who have not had the pleasure, dare I say joy, of being introduced to the movie, Die Hard is an action thriller released in 1988 where the grizzled New York City cop named John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, becomes a one-man army taking on German bank robbers who are holding John's wife and her unlucky colleagues hostage in a high-rise office building while they try to steal $650 million. The film was not released at Christmas or originally marketed as a Christmas movie, but it is set during Christmas, which is where the debate begins. John McClane's wife, of course, was attending a holiday party at work when Hans Gruber and his gang take them hostage. And the word Christmas appears 18 times in the movie script, and there are 21 distinct Christmas elements ranging from Santa hats and Christmas trees to festive treats and a pivotal piece of Christmas greetings tape. Die Hard also features four Christmas songs, including Winter Wonderland, a whistled section of Jingle Bells, and a rousing rendition of Let It Snow over the end credits, making it audibly more Christmassy than 99.2% of movies released over the last 30 years. Finally, and I can tell how much you care about this from your faces, <laughs> One of the writers of the film, Stephen D'Souza, once declared, this is the writer now, if Die Hard is not a Christmas movie, then White Christmas is not a Christmas movie. It's really younger Americans who demand the film be treated as a traditional Christmas movie, and their argument has been so convincing that on the 30th anniversary of the film in 2018, 20th Century Fox released a new trailer that portrayed Die Hard as a traditional Christmas film with a bold new tagline, the greatest Christmas story ever told. <laughs> I have a feeling the author of Luke and possibly God might beg to differ with 20th Century Fox. Yet the debate over Die Hard is grounded in some important questions about art. Art is notoriously subjective. Like beauty, it is in the eye of the beholder. And it's been said everyone has their own interpretation Many theories have been espoused to establish whether the meaning and significance of a piece of art is determined by the artist, or the audience, or both. And the die-hard debate that just won't die demands that we wrestle with questions like, what makes a movie a Christmas movie? What makes a story a Christmas story? What makes a song a Christmas song? The movie Die Hard begins with a rather meta scene that speaks to this very question. John McClane at the opening credits is riding in a limo with a driver 
a young black man named Argyle says, mind if I play some music? And he puts on a hip-hop cassette tape. John McLean grins disapprovingly and says, don't you have any Christmas music? And Argyle replies, this is Christmas music. The song was Run DMC's Christmas in Hollis. One person's Christmas music is another person's abrasive anthem. And one person's abrasive anthem is another person's Christmas music. Consider Mary's song, otherwise known as the Magnificat. For obvious reasons, it is widely considered not only the original Christmas song, but the greatest of all Christmas songs. And yet, not everyone has found Mary's song to be a joyful declaration of good news. In addition to being beloved by many, Mary's song is also possibly the most terrifying, most hated, and most banned song in all of Western history. In the 17th century and 18th century, Mary's song was known to strike fear in the hearts of Russian czars. During the British Empire's occupation of India in the late 19th century, Mary's song was prohibited from being sung in churches. Writing from Nazi Germany in the 1930s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Mary's song the wildest, most passionate, and revolutionary hymn ever sung. In the 1980s, poor Guatemalans were so emboldened by Mary's song in their fight for better wages that the government banned her words. The infamous U.S.-backed dictator, General Pinochet in Chile, outlawed Mary's song because it was a, he was afraid it would incite a revolution. A group of Argentinian mothers who lost their children during the dirty war and began placing Mary's song on posters throughout the capital so the government forbid the display of her dangerous words in public. In 2011, the Occupy Wall Street movement sang Mary's song in Zuccotti Park, confronting the greed and enormous economic disparity between rich and poor in America. And now our government has never banned Mary's words or Mary's song, but maybe they don't have to, because we've become so good at singing her song without embodying what it says. Throughout history, poor and oppressed peoples have found great hope and strength in Mary's song. While those at the top rung of the social ladder, the powers that be, have often found Mary's song troublesome, abrasive, and threatening. Why? What makes this Christmas song beloved by some and hated by others? Well, it's the content. The structure of Mary's song is reminiscent of Hebrew poetry and psalms. Her lyrics can be divided into two sections. In the first, Mary magnifies God and rejoices over all the great things the Mighty One has done for her personally. And you can feel the emotions of overwhelming gratitude and joy spilling off of every single word. But then, Mary turns the attention away from herself toward the new thing God is doing in the world. And there are four elements of Mary's full-throated proclamation of God's glorious work in the world. Loving kindness for the reverent, a preferential option for the poor, a great reversal of unjust social arrangements, and the fulfillment of promises made to the ancestors. All of this, surprisingly, is delivered in the past tense, as if it were not a prediction of the future at all or a foregone conclusion, but an event that has already occurred in the past because the kingdom has already arrived. In our society today, there are many forces 
hell-bent on seducing us into believing that the Christmas season is all about us. My family, my kid, my, my friends, my meals, my, my lights, my tree, my house, my decorations, my gifts, my toys, all my Christmas joy. And all I, we need to do is watch one of the many holiday commercials or Christmas movies or listen to the Christmas music on the radio for 10 minutes and we can become so enchanted by a kind of magical sentiment of narcissistic self-absorption that any semblance of the real meaning of the birth of Jesus vanishes up the chimney. But Christmas is not supposed to be about just us, is it? As one book title contends, Christmas is not your birthday. I mean, it's somebody's birthday on Christmas, I know that, but you get the point of the book title, right? And I'm not trying to peddle the whole Jesus is the reason for the season baloney that you'll find on a billboard now and then on the highway. Mary arguably received the greatest and most burdensome gift in human history and rejoiced magnificently for what she'd been given. Yet most of her song is not about her at all, but about what this gift from God meant for her people especially the lowly and the hungry. Her song was not egotistical self-aggrandizement, but an expression of joy over what God had done for Israel, for the poor, and for the rest of humanity. God has scattered the arrogant in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. These radical words may seem very novel to us today as the lyrics for a Christmas song because our world's celebration of this holiday is so disconnected from the original story and suffers from a failure to imagine anything outside the current arrangements of power. But Mary's words were not novel in her day. In fact, Hebrew readers of Luke's gospel would have heard something incredibly familiar in her song, echoing back through the ages. Like a jazz musician, a hip-hop artist, a DJ, a producer, Mary was riffing and sampling and remixing a song that had been sung throughout the ages by Hebrew women, the prophetesses who came before her. Mary's song remixed Miriam's song of joy in Exodus 15 that she sang after God delivered her people out of bondage in Egypt. She remixed Deborah's song of joy in Judges 5 that she sang after God delivered her people from the hand of the Canaanites. She remixed even Judith's song of joy that we might not know. It's in the Apocrypha in Judith 16 that Judith sang after God delivered her people a victory over the Assyrians. And she remixed an unnamed woman's song of joy in Psalm 113 who promised that God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and gives the barren woman a home making her the joyous mother of children. And above and beyond all others, Mary remixed Hannah's song of joy from 1 Samuel 2 that we heard read today. It's probably not surprising that most Hebrew women prophetesses were artists and poets. 
playing tambourines, dancing, composing music, and singing songs. But what is surprising to many of us is the common theme that appears in all the songs that Mary remixed through the ages, the theme of deliverance, God's liberatory activity on behalf of the people. Deliverance is the through line in every song of joy, including Hannah's, the quintessential song of deliverance in the Bible, which is the one that Mary sampled from the most. Hannah's song of joy begins, like Mary's, with a mag- magnificent declaration of God and what God has done for her, rejoicing. But then, like Mary, Hannah turns away from herself and toward the rest of the world with a promise of a great reversal, which would be hope for the poor and powerless and a warning for the powerful and well-to-do. Speak proudly no more, she sang, nor let arrogance come from your mouth. The bows of the mighty are broken, yet the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves for bread, yet those who were hungry are fat. She who has been barren has birthed seven, yet she who has many has languished. The creator kills and gives life, brings down and raises up. The gracious one makes poor and rich, brings low and lifts up. God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the heaps of human history to sit with nobles and inherit the seats of honor. What's so striking about Hannah's song of joy to me is that she did not sing it upon becoming pregnant. She did not sing it during a visit with a close relative. She did not sing it even after she gave birth to Samuel. No, she sang her song of joy on the day she handed her son over to the temple to be raised as a priest. Think about that. It's astonishing for a woman who cried longingly for a child at the beginning of her story to sing with joy as she hands over the child she prayed for so ardently over to the temple. Why is she rejoicing? Why not sadness? Why not at least some bittersweet, conflicted response here? Well, because Hannah did not just want a child for herself, for her own joy, for her own gratification or to even rival her sister wife, Penaniah. No, Hannah did not just want a child of her own, but for the deliverance of her people. Someone who would bring liberation not just for her, but for the lowly and the hungry. Only this can explain why she hands her child to Eli with a joyful song of exaltation to God. She wanted to bring deliverance beyond her life and her family and her home into the world. Because only the deliverance of all her people could bring true joy. What would it look like for us if we were able to receive the gifts we've been given by God in our lives, even the most precious gifts like our children and grandchildren, as gifts not only for our own edification and enjoyment, but for the freedom and liberation and deliverance of the world. Our bodies, minds, hearts, spirits, lives, could we receive them as gifts to be employed in the struggle for freedom? Our children, our homes, our money, our resources, our businesses, our mouths, our hands, our feet, could we receive them as gifts to be engaged in for the struggle of liberation?
Is this not what the Hebrew women who sing long to teach us in their songs? As Hannah and Mary reveal, we do not have to be singularly focused on the needs of others or the deliverance of the world at the expense of our own deliverance and our own enjoyment because it's not an either-or, zero-sum game. Our freedom, our joy, is tied up with everyone else's freedom and joy. Women like Emma Lazarus and Fannie Lou Hamer and Maya Angelou have said that the truth is, if one of us is not free, then none of us are free. Or as Lila Watson said, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time, but if you've come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. An American who embodies Mary's riffing and sampling and remixing style is Bernice Johnson Reagan. A singer, songwriter, composer, scholar, civil rights activist, Bernice called herself a song talker and was a founding member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, the Freedom Singers, the Albany Singing Movement, and later the group Sweet Honey in the Rock. Raised as a daughter of a Baptist minister at a church in Georgia that did not have a piano, her early music began a cappella, with her first instruments being her hands and her feet. She joined her first choir at the age of 11, but it wasn't until the Freedom Summer of 1964 that she discovered the power of collective singing to unify people working together for freedom. In her memoir, Bernice recalls, after singing together, the differences between us were not so great. Somehow, making a song required an expression of that which was common to all of us. Our music was like an instrument, like a tool in our hands to be used for unity and freedom. The role models Bernice drew from were her ancestors in the freedom movement, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Abby Lincoln, and Bessie Jones, who insisted that singing was a necessary tool in the fight for liberation. Like Mary, Bernice riffed on ancient spirituals, sampled the hymns of the church, remixed the songs of her ancestors to bring forth deliverance for her people. She dedicated her life to using her God-given gift of music to develop a vision of community that was based in a culture which enlarged everyone's capacity for mutual respect for ourselves and for all people. Like Miriam, Deborah, Judith, Hannah, Mary, and Bernice, every one of us has been given gifts and a unique role to play in the drama of God's liberatory activity in history. We know from the stories and songs of Hebrew women prophetesses in the Bible that God has a preferential option for the lowly, raises the poor from the dust, and lifts the needy from the ash heaps of human history. God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brings down the powerful from their thrones, and lifts up the lowly, fills the hungry with good things, and sends the rich away empty. Each of these incredible women were able to discover themselves in the divine drama, their role to take hold of their own destiny and to embrace the unique place and part they had to play in the story through song. They knew, as Henry Nouwen once said, we must all discern our identity in the midst of the time and place in which we live. That's where joy is waiting to be found. It's waiting to be found when we discover our meaning and our purpose and our role in God's deliverance of the world. That's when the song of Christmas burst forth from our hearts and our souls with joy. 
There's a great quote going around that says, want to keep Christ in Christmas? Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Forgive the guilty. Welcome the unwanted. Care for the ill. Love your enemies. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what Christmas is about because that's what Jesus was about. He was that long-hoped-for deliverer who cared for the poor and lowly and flipped the world upside down. So any song that proclaims God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts is a Christmas song. Any song that proclaims God brings down the powerful from their thrones is a Christmas song. Any song that proclaims God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty is a Christmas song. Any song that proclaims that God raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the lowly from the ash heap is a Christmas song. Any song that proclaims God is engaged in a great reversal of all the unjust arrangements in our world is a Christmas song. Any song that proclaims God's deliverance is a Christmas song. And I guess any movie that does these things is a Christmas movie as well. Theologian Leonardo Boff once said, God flings the proud of heart to the earth in the hope that they will be free. Delivered from their ridiculous vaunting and flaunting to become free and faithful children of God and true brothers and sisters to others. And so this Christmas, may the proud be scattered. May the powerful be dethroned. May the rich be emptied. May the hungry be filled. May the poor rise up. May the lowly be lifted. And may each and every one of us find our role in God's story of deliverance. And like Hannah and Mary, may we all turn away from ourselves and toward our neighbor as we sing for the joy of all of humanity. Amen.